Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell, and this episode is in partnership with the Friedrich Ebert Foundation, or FES. We have three guests on today for a wide-ranging discussion on diplomacy in the Horn and the broader Red Sea region amidst several ongoing crises, led by, of course, the war in Sudan. I'm pleased to welcome back Kholud Kerr, Abdul Mohammed, and Alexander Rondos, all repeat guests on the show. Khulud is a founding director at Confluence Advisory, a think tank focused on Sudan. Abdul has worked in various senior positions for the United Nations and the African Union in the region. And Alex was also a longtime diplomat in the region for the European Union and is now a senior advisor for the U.S. Institute of Peace, where he is focusing on the greater Red Sea area. It's really an all-star panel today, so thanks to you all for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Thank you very much. Just a note that we recorded this last week, so there is no mention here about the EGAD summit on Sudan over the weekend, where Generals Burhan and Hameti both expressed a willingness to meet each other face-to-face. Obviously, the, the, the region is in crisis. I mean, it goes without saying. Listeners of the podcast are hearing this every single episode. But I think how we define the crisis and exactly how we explain it is 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 really crucial to sort of uh, addressing it and understanding it. So how, you know, when you're seeing the broader crisis, obviously Sudan's an epicenter right now of it, but how do you how do you see and how do you define the crisis affecting the Horn of Africa right now? I, th- I think the way you frame the question is important because the person doing the defining often sort of determines what the crisis looks like. Um, and I think what we've seen in the region is that, for example, crises like climate change and crises like terrorism aren't really thought of as immediate crises because often the people who are defining the crisis see much more immediate, um, you know, sort of dilemmas that immediately impact them. But I think, you know, we we can say unequivocally that what is happening in Sudan right now is a crisis. And it's, uh, it is a crisis that is has started in Sudan, but absolutely will spread to the region. We're already seeing signs of that. I think when we start looking at this crisis in terms of an, a regional perspective, we also have to define what the region that, that is, you know, looks like. It's not just Horn of Africa. It's not just Red Sea. It's also Sahel. Um, it is also impacting, for example, North Africa. And I think oftentimes either we don't look at the history or we look at the history through a very specific lens. You know, the war in Sudan, for example, is, an, a, is a cumulative thing. It is the result of previous conflicts in the country that have never been resolved. It is a, the, the direct result of questions around equitable access to resources and identity and, and sort of what the state looks like and who it represents and whom it works for that have never really been resolved. Mm. And Abdul, when you tell the story of the Horn of Africa, it's in a very critical point, obviously looks in crisis. What's the story that you tell? Uh, for me, uh, what the countries in the Horn of Africa share in common is a crisis of the state. The legitimacy of the state is very violently contested in the viability of the state. Therefore, you know, any analysis of the Horn of Africa, I think, has to begin with the crisis of the state. And that crisis of the state manifests itself differently in different countries. And I think uh, uh, the, the one in the Sudan, which is just taking place, you know, live, uh, is an important one to really dissect. What grabbed me is that the Sudanese political elite, Sudanese uh, business elite, uh, the bureaucrats, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the cultural elite, all vacated Khartoum. All of them vacated Khartoum, which is really the backbone of your middle class. And, and they all went out of the country. That, for me, was really shocking because when people talk about the collapse of a state, you know, it is sometimes a theoretical discourse. But in the case of the Sudan, it was live. We saw it happening. And, and Alex, do you think we can view these crises, you know, individually, or do we have to see them as, you know, obviously interlocking, but very much of a much more regional uh, nature? The facts on the ground are we're seeing a rapid uh, proliferation of centers of violence. That means most of the analytical frames of how we look at this region need to be rethought. Why is this happening? Where is it happening? Who's financing it? Who's fueling the weapons? But something is happening which most people don't notice. In this region where boundaries, ethnicities have straddled boundaries and they are manipulated politically 
by different regimes. And we're entering into a period where many of the norms and the multilateral rules that contain and restrain people seem to be not applied. Um, they're just not being implemented and practiced at the moment. Therefore, there's a sense of license. And what's very worrying within the region is that You've got to imagine like a billiard table, someone throws a single ball and everything starts to ricochet. And if one thing happens in Sudan, it's noticed elsewhere. And that's what we need to watch out for. And that is where the people involved in the politics and diplomacy of the region need to be really, really attentive. Finally, as people from outside watch it, especially we're seeing now in the Gulf, there are players there who are ready to find proxies among people who are willing to be active accomplices of, of whatever patronage they receive. So we're entering a period of grave uncertainty, but we've got to understand the interplay. Above all, just remember, there's no restraint. Since the, the international, the, the global, the major powers seem to have moved back, that raises the huge question, who's got the leadership? within which to convene people to try to see how we can protect this the region from being further affected. There is this sense at the moment that there are no rules and the rules have have broken down. When when did that happen and you know what was was there a critical moment when it felt like regional actors realized, you know, the rules didn't apply anymore? It's crept up on us. I mean that's the reality. I was involved and I was watching didn't, not realizing the full extent. So the issue here is what is the nature of what has crept up? And I think for the first time, we have to understand that there may be players in the region who are willing to contemplate something that was beyond contemplation before. That concerns the manner in which one seeks power and consolidates power, which means you don't negotiate, you use violence, and that violence is therefore the first resort, not the last. I think secondly, borders may risk, may become thrown up for for, for doubt and, and, and debate, if not action. These are the sorts of things, but that's crept up on us. But I think what it's in only in the last, you know, I would say year or two. Yeah, I worry watching Sudan that it's not only Sudan that we're watching maybe the first crisis of this new unraveling order where no matter how grave the magnitude of the crisis, that there are crises the world no longer feels the need to respond to. Um, and I can't think of one of this magnitude of a complete collapse where essentially the responses were too distracted to have a coherent response. Kolud, the, the response, you know, I mean, we've talked on this podcast about the diplomacy, about what disarray is in, you know, looking at the regional politics, looking at all the actors, look at everyone who wants a lead. Uh, where do you think people should start in at least starting to have some uh, real pressure to end, stop this fighting, end this war, where should, you know, where should people be looking? I mean, I'd like to say the region. I'd like to say that because this is already such a regionalized issue, that the region would be a good place to start. But as both Abdul and Alex have said, you know, this is a period of sort of a sea change. And I don't think the rules are very clear yet. Um, and so people don't, there's a sense that there isn't quite the framework that, that's in place that could help to to guide um, the response to those changes. Um, so we're a bit, in a bit of a no man's land, I think, when it comes to having the kinds of political and diplomatic frameworks in place. And certainly the ones we currently do have in place seem to have all but failed. Um, but just on, to your point that, you know, Sudan represents this inflection point or sort of um, a new normal. I, I think, you know, we have to acknowledge that, you know, Ethiopia was also that because we, what we saw in Ethiopia was Okay, it wasn't total state collapse in in the way of Sudan, and Sudan is the only conflict at right now globally where the center, the capital, was hit first and hit hardest. But what we saw in Ethiopia uh, during the two years of war there was that there was almost um, complete impunity, and that has given, I think, space for a lot of nefarious actors not just in Sudan, but in the region to consider that the stakes are not what they used to be, um, that there is actually the disincentive structures that usually were in place for mass killings, uh, uh, you know, upwards of hundreds of thousands of people just are no longer there. We don't have, the, you know, the responsibility to protect is almost sort of a historical footnote right now. Um, the UN Security Council is by no means the place where any decisions get made. Um, <clears throat> the AU is frankly a joke and uh, EGAD has not been able to 
uh, overcome its own internal incoherences to be able to muster the kind of response that this region needs. So the answer to your question is that the answer lies nowhere, but the responsibility lies everywhere. And we do need to pressure those who can apply not just diplomatic, but financial pressures on the belligerents. Again, not just Burhan and Hamati, but others. We need to maximize on that. But I, for one, don't have much hope. Abdul, you just wrote in the New York Times that, um, well, A, that a second genocide is is happening in Darfur. Um, and, and secondly, you uh, make the case for a Kenyan-led for diplomacy to consolidate around a Kenyan-led effort. Expound upon that. How do you see that consolidating all these you know, various diplomatic threads? Yeah, I mean, uh, first, uh, the Sudanese crisis uh, have two epicenters. One is Khartoum and the other one is Darfur. And Khartoum has been receiving, relative to Darfur, uh, some attention. At the same time, in Darfur, a more vicious war was going on it's leading towards uh, you know a possibility of uh, war crimes being committed crimes against humanity and the brunt of that fell on the african tribes of darfur and no major response from the international community or from the region has has alarmed us or has has expressed their concern for what's happening in darfur we should have spoken out uh, very clearly and very forcefully that did not happen. And it, as a matter of fact, is a non-governmental organization that has been ringing the alarm bells. Uh, right now, the reality is, is that there are three initiatives on the Sudan. One out of Cairo, which involves the neighboring countries, and one out of Jeddah, focused on security issues, and one out of Nairobi or out of Igad, uh, which also... But if you look each one of them and see their public pronouncements uh, on what their mandate is. The Cairo initiative of the uh, neighboring countries is really focused on humanitarian issues, which is extremely dire, all right? Therefore, access you know, uh, for humanitarian is, is one of their uh, templates. And the other one is the issue of uh, uh, the collapse of the Sudan state and the consequences for the region as a whole. This is what they say their mandate is, or at least the way they articulated. Jeddah, in practice, led by the American and the Saudis, is focused on stopping the war, which is very important. You have to, to silence the gun in order to address the other pertinent issues. And the third one was the IGAT process, which was articulated as focusing on seeking a political solution that the problem of the Sudan is fundamentally political and you need to have a process that privileges politics by taking into account all of the other challenges. So there is a natural division of labor that could come out of these three initiatives. And therefore, you know, these three initiatives must find, for the sake of the Sudan and for the sake of the stability of the region, must find a way of cooperating with, uh, with each other to be effective. Uh, but there's, you know, there are also real dilemmas that are that are now diplomacy now faces. I think it's fair to say there's been a, a real failure of diplomacy, but also there's uh, real challenges confronting it. You know, on Sudan, you've had Kenya wants to lead. Uh, South Sudan has wanted to lead. At various points, Ethiopia has wanted to lead. The U.S. has wanted to lead. Saudi Arabia has wanted to lead. The AU has wanted to lead. Egypt has wanted to lead. The UAE wants to be centrally involved, and I'm not even necessarily sure who's... I'm not sure I'm even counting all of them. But in that, there is a challenge. Not all those actors are in Africa. Not all of them respect multilateralism. Alex, you know, as, as a former diplomat, what, you know, what are the constraints? And then what, what are the actual opportunities that can be done for diplomacy right now, given this, what I just laid out? The first thing we need to learn is restore real diplomacy. What does that mean, though? It doesn't mean ritualistic meetings. It doesn't mean one person making one telephone call and saying, I've called this prime minister or that president. It's that hard work of back-channel diplomacy. It's that hard work of finding pragmatic ways forward. It's people being on airplanes talking. It's not just telephone calls. That's the real world of real diplomacy. I fear that is not being done. There's, there's a lot of performance, but I'm not seeing real substance, and I, I, I'm sorry to say that. That is what can be improved very, very fast, I think. Th then the question comes, well, who does that? 
which is builds on your previous question. Um, I believe that the multiplication of, of different initiatives is actually a consequence of the lack of basic diplomacy at the very outset of a crisis. I'm old-fashioned on this. I happen to believe that if you wait for the choreography of international bureaucracies, a lot of people are going to die. Not because they will that, but that is in the nature of the beast. Therefore, the time has come to create what I would call, as one used to have before, something called a contact group, though apparently that's unfashionable these days. The fact is the people who own the guns and the money in the international community who have the influence may need to talk about what it is in their basic common interests to find a way forward. That means they've got to agree on what makes sense. That's the difficult discussion. So let's be very practical. Who needs to talk here? It is one or two countries in the European Union, it is the United States, it is Saudi Arabia, it is uh, the United Arab Emirates, and I would not exclude China from this, because China, at the end of the day, is a player who is best, in my view, incorporated rather than left adrift in such discussions. If, if you want African solutions, Africa's got to ask who, who they want help from, and and into entering a tower of institutional babble is not the answer. I'm being very I'm trying to be very practical here at the risk of being controversial and deliberately so. Someone's got to answer me now why a contact group type of format is not relevant to the moment. That point, quiet discussions occur with the very people who may be seen to be part of the problem as to how they could end up with the problem on their laps. That's the political discussion that needs to occur. Those who are promoting violence as a solution are one day going to see violence reach them. This is, to me, mathematical. It's arithmetical. Okay? There will be a radicalization of the dispossessed that will go and go after the very people who they think caused it. That's politics, and it's reality, and people need to absorb that. So who has the interest to start making that move? One of those countries that I mentioned has got to take the initiative. It's a pity that the United States has decided to sit back, not because I'm, I'm pro-American. It's because most people will feel more assured if the United States is an active and responsible partner player in this. That's the psychology, I think, of the moment. I've had a, a, a regional official uh, say recently, the problem with the U.S. is not that they've step back, it's that now they're acting as one of the players and they used to be master of the game. And the issue is now someone needs to mediate between the US and all these actors. Let, let me give you a counterfactual. Mm. If the United States, six months ago, had called together the powers that I have, plus the parties and the, and the regional neighbors, and said, we're getting together right now, I wa I'll wager you not a single person would have said, no, I'm not attending. And they would have attended at the highest levels. Why has that not happened? Where, it's not the failure of diplomacy. Where's the failure of imagination? Why have the regional players not asked for that? You don't do it publicly. You say, for God's sake, please, convene now. You still command that. No one would have refused. No one. Am I right or wrong? You're definitely right. And I think, you know, the, the Americans complain about um, their sort of diminished world standing, but no one is catalyzing that more than they are. Um, and I think, you know, going back to this idea of African solutions to African problems, you know, what is happening in Sudan is not an African problem, or at least it's not exclusively an African problem. So the solution can, of course, not be therefore completely African. So I totally agree with Alex that if you gather the right interested parties, and there are many of them, um, with very specific leadership, then at least you will go some way into sort of addressing uh, perhaps some of the issues rather than deferring them to a later stage and thinking perhaps a region will pick it up. Right now, what I think is the, 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 the problem is of such monumental uh, uh, you know, dimension that, uh, and given the weakness of the political leaders within the continent and the, and, and the region, um, the only way that I conceive a way forward for them to really re reinvent themselves and be relevant and help is in a collective manner. They should re realize their weaknesses and try to overcome those weaknesses by working together. Cairo, uh, Nairobi, and Jeddah have to work together to compensate for the failure 
that that that's been visited on the on the on the on the Sudan. And then if they work together, they will really force the Sudanese actors, the civilians especially, to also work together. You know, to do their their part because they are the essential. You know, uh, actually the indispensable element is how the Sudanese. Uh, uh, civil civil leaders come together and and address the challenge in a manner that will give this different initiative the basis to assist them. And since I think in conflict resolution, uh, even though stopping of the gun, the silencing of the gun is an important first step. You know, still it has to be done under the umbrella of some political framework, and that's why. In, in the article on the New York Times, we emphasized the role of IGAD because there is a political intention behind their, uh, their initiative. You know? So the main message that I want to communicate is work together in order, to, in order for you to be in a position to assist Sudan. And, and the other thing that we need to realize is that Sudan geographically is in, in such a situation where it is a place where black Africa and Arab Africa meets. It is a place where Christian Africa and Muslim Africa meets. It is also a place where uh, 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 Gulf Africa or uh, 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 countries that are closer to the Red Sea and, and Africans who are closer to the Red Sea meet. All right. Therefore, it is imperative that all of them work together and the initiative should take into account the interest of these two regions, Africa and, and the Arab region, to find a common uh, solution. By doing so, actually, they will lay the foundation for future cooperation if they solve the problem of the Sudan or if they tackle the Sudan problem in a credible manner. That will be the foundation for future cooperation between the two shores of the Red Sea. And as a result of that, the Red Sea now will become, you know, uh, a shared space. And Sudan is going to be the test. I was about to pivot to the Red Sea because I feel like amid all of this, including with Sudan, this is the year when the centrality of the Red Sea amid this greater region has really come to the fore. And it's something Abdul, something Alex, you guys have worked on. It's central to Sudan. Many say, you know, what do the Emiratis want? One thing they want is access to the Red Sea. You have claims to the Red Sea on both sides of the border. You have Saudi Arabia investing heavily in the Red Sea as part of its, its vision 2030. You have Prime Minister uh, Abiy Ahmed, who's stressed uh, the historic claims of Ethiopia to the Red Sea, um, which has obviously sent regional quakes around the region. Alex, when, when you're watching these regional developments, how much do you wonder sometimes that it's you know, behind all of these other actions, actually, it's this Red Sea element that's, you know, the underappreciated driver of all this. Well, it's, it's not so much the driver as the arena. And why? It is a waterway, uh, which is a major maritime route, which means, one, either a lot of people make money out of it, thus Egypt and others, and, and now Saudi Arabia, which is tilting a lot of its economic investment into the western part of Saudi Arabia, thus the Red Sea. Um, that creates an additional incentive for the Saudi Arabia to naturally think about the security of the Red Sea. And I think this is a fairly dramatic shift from, let's say, five, ten years ago. Um, now, I think in this, we, we need to bear in mind something. The Red Sea is, if you will, a euphemism for what is an unbalanced relationship between the west side of the Red Sea, where there is uh, it's a state of, frankly, perennial turmoil, sometimes less, sometimes more, but it's profoundly unpredictable with actors running unfinished states and incomplete nations. Whereas on the other side, you have a, a huge state of enormous significance called the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the other, the Emirates and others, who have their own issues among themselves, but it's, a, it's of a different order. Second, historically, the European presence in this area through colonialism is a minor punctuation historically in a relationship that has existed between the, the peoples of the western part of the Red Sea and, um, 
and and of you know certainly Saudi Arabia, the Hejaz, Yemen, and the like. So we shouldn't be surprised by that. So in one sense, historically, it's the normal course of events. But here's the point. Let me bring it right up to date. If people are not waking up to the fact that we've had one ship hijacked on the Bab al-Mandab, the, en- the southern entrance of the Red Sea, and attacks on three other ships within the last days, insurance costs going up so much that most shipping is thinking of diverting to go around the Cape rather than through the Suez Canal and the Red Sea, we're entering into a new, this is where the problem has gone global. And it's going to hit the pocketbooks of Europeans, Africans, and people in the Gulf. That starts with there. The Americans later down the road. So the Red Sea and the crisis around it, triggered by the events of Hamas's attack in, in, in Israel and, and the response, are now turning the Red Sea into arena, a global cockpit. If you're sitting in the horn, have you even woken up to the fact that you are now the object of a set of interests that are going to decide to act in spite of you, not because of you? And if this region cannot, if you will, really wake up to what's going on, and the leaders among it understand that there's a greater danger um, if they don't find ways of, find, of seeking common ground, in spite of the Sudans and Ethiopias and everything else, that is the larger thing that's happening. It's, it's going to be a scramble of a different kind, and that's the danger. Right now, look at the economics, look at the geoeconomics and the way it's playing out. I think this is, this is the risk, but curiously enough, the opportunity. But you've got to put, we can talk Sudan until we're blue in the face, Tomorrow, it's going to be, we're going to have to have a discussion about Sudan in the global setting. Who are the players? Who are the interests? How, do they, how are they drawn in so that this entire region, let's remember, if you include Egypt, which is, you know, in economic peril at the moment, we're talking about uh, about 300 million souls who live along the Nile and the Red Sea. That's what's at stake. If that side of the Red Sea is not in order, what follows? Who's going to interfere? So it's a, I'm making a call to responsibility internationally, but also within the region. Khalid, from the Sudanese perspective, sitting there on the Red Sea, obviously Sudan civil war has plenty of its own internal drivers, but to, to, to what degree does some of this regional competition feel like it's also making things much worse? I think it's central to it. I mean, what we saw even before this war broke out was that the Red Sea politics played a big role. And it's not just because the Red Sea offers an opportunity. It it is a site of global trade. It is because it's also the site for disruption of global trade with two choke points, not even one, the Suez Canal and the Bab el-Mandeb Strait. And so it becomes a place that is attractive for spoilers. Uh, And some of the actors in this area, not just in Sudan, see great leverage in being able to sort of administer remotely these choke points through their nefarious acts. And so if you are, you know, um, whether you're a state actor or a non-state actor, that suddenly becomes quite a way for you to, um, you know, influence some of these regions. And we have then, of course, countries that are not on the Red Sea, but absolutely want a presence uh, on the Red Sea and on the structures um, that are forged on the Red Sea, such as the Red Sea Council, thinking here specifically of the United Arab Emirates and how they have been quite obvious in their drive, shall we say, to have a presence on the Red Sea. Um, And, you know, some analysts and others have drawn a link between that drive for a presence on the Red Sea and their support for the rapid support forces in Sudan. So absolutely, these things are linked. Um, The Russians also, of course, have wanted a naval base, a nuclear naval base on the Red Sea and had gotten some preliminary um, go ahead from Bashir initially and then from the from Bashir uh, Burhan and and Hemeti when they were friends. Um, And now they're sort of trying to figure out how it is that they will be able to get that presence on the Red Sea. So I think countries that are the most fragile are the countries that attract the most nefarious types of predatory imperialism, if you will. And I think that in some ways, what is happening from the Gulf can be looked at as a sort of imperialism, um, because it's about a presence that um, 
within these countries, within these, within these geographical locations, including, for example, Sudan, that will facilitate extraction. Um, and we're certainly seeing that from across the board. What I think the Sudanese need to sort of think about, we all need to think about, but also within the region is how we strengthen our position vis-a-vis -vis the eastern side of the Red Sea. Because, I mean, we're at gunned, we're at financed. Um, and as Alex said, you know, these places are, at least for now, far more politically stable, although by no means that may change by at, at some point in the near future. But anyway, in the meantime, it is this side, is the African side of the Red Sea that is far more politically and economically fragile. And I think we need to figure out how we collectively, you know, strengthen our own positions vis-a-vis uh, -vis the other side, but in a way that is complementary, in a way that is non-confrontational. Because unless we do that, we're effectively sitting ducks for the imperial desires of um, the eastern side of the Mediterranean. And here I also include Israel um, and other countries. But we also become the arena of conflict for countries further afield, including, for example, Iran. Um, and I just think, you know, I mean, from a Sudanese perspective, it is unfathomable how much worse this, can, this could get for a country like Sudan, if a greater conflict on the Red Sea opens up, whether it's because of Ethiopia, Eritrea, or because of Iran, Israel. And these are, th these are things that actually are out of our control. Um, so we also have to look at what is within, within our control to do. And I think actually that in some ways provides a common interest for Sudanese people that is some to some degree lacking with this war. Um, and it's potentially a good starting point, at least to sort of focus some of our energies as we're thinking about how we imagine a future Sudan to sort of, you know, make sure that the right questions are being asked and not deferred. Managing this period is going to be extremely important. It's important for us also to realize that some of these Gulf countries are blatantly aggressive in pursuit of what they consider to be their interest, or they are taking into account the current chaos in the global order and trying before a new order is settled, they want to carve out their sphere of influence aggressively and institutionalize themselves. And the consequence for, of that in the Horn of Africa is devastating. It actually is devastating, all right? So how do we restrain that aggressive impulse? Unfortunately, the multilateral institutions that were traditionally built in Africa who are supposed to insulate us from this are at their weakest. And as a matter of fact, some of these multilateral institutions have been rendered you know, irrelevant. Still, the future of Africa's peace and security, especially in our region, still lies in a multilateral collective security paradigm. And so we cannot abandon, we cannot abandon the African peace, peace, security principles and norms. It's still relevant. The scenario, I, uh, if the current conflict continues in its current pace, what I really visualize is what, what are the examples that we need to look into to see the future if nothing is being done. Now, let's look at Libya and let's look at Yemen. Okay, Libya and Yemen, the same kind of intervention were done. In the case of Libya, it is the NATO and also the Gulf countries. And uh, what resulted in that is, for all practical purposes, Libya is split into two. A power center in Benghazi and another power center in Tripoli. Right now, it looks like stabilizing itself at that. And this is now considered the new normal. And they will forget it at that. So the permanent split of Libya may be there, you know, because it's normal and nobody is paying attention. Therefore, right now, the prospect for Sudan it could be a power center in Port Sudan and a power center either in Khartoum or around that, right? And this could be the new normal. We need to avoid the, that new normal. I mean, we already have a split in Sudan. The question is, how permanent is it? Yeah. What's different between the Libya-Yemen scenario and the Sudan scenario is that in Libya and Yemen, both sides had access to the sea. Whereas in Sudan, that wouldn't be the case with how things currently are. So I, I don't think this will hold for very long. And the danger there becomes that it's not a Libya scenario anymore, but a Somalia scenario with several zones of influence and spheres of influence that you cannot corral into a secession of hostilities agreement, for example. For me as a European, my analogy is the 1930s in Europe. Oh, God. Unrestrained ambition, recklessness, meaning, test constantly. I feel that right now, 
the guardrails are down and people have decided that they can tip the scale and say, let's use violence to find the, the solution. And that negotiation kind of is for wimps. Real people find, use weapons and get solutions that way. Look at this region right now. Sudan, we're seeing it. And Sudan's not just two belligerents because others will emerge before long. Ethiopia, there's, it's toxic what's happening there. The Oromo, the Amhara, the Tigrayans are back and out of it now. This could get even worse. Somalia is unfinished business. Now, then you go to a next stage, which I, my, this is why I have make an allusion to, to the 1930s. Um, and it's also a bit to Yugoslavia, when there are no restraints and everyone's delayed and sucking on their teeth and wondering what to do. What you get is people resort then to the politics of identity. Politics of identity means you weaponize yourself and you purify your constituency. Thus ethnic cleansing. And I fail to see why that is not on the cards in the region. Now the trouble is there may be a lot of people sitting elsewhere in the world who are just too distracted to care. But then the region would better understand what it will live with. It's not just a split between two Sudans. It is multiple centers who will try to lay their claim to a new form of sovereignty and legitimacy. I, I would go that far, and it's mainly because norms are declining, and there are people un underwriting this from outside who are willing to see a fragmentation. Alex, sorry to throw this one to you. Ethiopia claiming that it needs sea access. How does, how does that change the dynamics within the region? I want to be clear, Ethiopia is a country of approaching 110 to 120 million people. The fact that it relies economically on the thin thread of a railway line and a road to one port is clearly nonsensical. All right? Therefore, Ethiopia has every right to say, how do we diversify our ability to trade? If you're in northern Ethiopia, it's absolutely natural. Your outlets are really Masawa in Eritrea. Admittedly, logistically, you have to build the road. You can go all the way down um, so that you're looking at Somalia and, and point south. The issue is the manner in which that desire is expressed. Why is it expressed in a particular way? Why has there not been a degree of negotiation that is properly prepared in order to seek... Um, what, how can I put it? Seek a room for a discussion and negotiation where you can get guaranteed agreements. This happens with many countries that are, that are landlocked. Right? That then begs the question, why? Why this manner right now? It, does it camouflage something? I don't know. But I do know that what it has done is left neighbors um, extremely jittery. And I just have to ask, you know, um, that the promiscuity of the language, is it inadvertent or is it actually desired to, is the purpose to, uh, to, to, if you will, not so much persuade or intimidate people to come to a table, meaning in the old parlance of, of, of certain other, you know, protection rackets in the world, you know, we have an offer you can't refuse. I think that's what these are hard questions that have to be asked, and I think, and the Ethiopian authorities have been asked that, and and I think they need to decide what is a negotiation and what isn't, what's a fait accompli and what is not. Abdul, you've made the case for for EGAD to take a bigger lead, but can we treat the region as business as usual when all of a sudden several countries feel that their sovereignty has been implicitly threatened, perhaps, by Ethiopia, and yet EGAD itself requires consensus. When you have this sort of regional divisions happening within the last few months, how, how does that affect regional politics and what the region can or can't accomplish? Let me preface by saying this before I respond to you. The elites of our region need to really focus and appreciate about the cost of war in our region. The Horn of Africa, in the past three years, you know, in the past three years, the consequences of war globally has gone up, okay, tremendously since 1989, as a matter of fact. And in the past three years, most of war-related death has taken place in the Horn of Africa. 
and the consequences are immense and it's going to take generations to recover from the current wars. Therefore, I am shocked that the elites of our region continue to talk about war in such caviar, in a, in a very casually, you know, and instead of uh, being war the last resort, you know, even that frightens me, you know, war is discussed as an accessible solution. And, and, and that signifies how the elites in our region are uncaring, are insulated from the consequences of war, and are also empowered by outside forces, you know, to, to take war as an option. And the danger of that actually is not being uh, reflected upon partly because the African institutions who are supposed to restrain member states are actually weak and subservient. And as a matter of fact, are um, reduced to being spectators to the kind of force that has been waged in our region. You know, that should really be, be the starting point, right? So we need to examine what is really animating, you know, uh, behind the scene, you know, uh, policies, both in the West and, and, and also in, 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 other, in other regions. Now, Alex also, just having said this, Alex uh, raised the issue of port, all right? In the Horn of Africa, yes, access to the sea is important. It's, it could lead to war unless it is addressed. And, um, and uh, in the Horn of Africa, in addition to Ethiopia, you know, as members of the EGAD countries, in addition to Ethiopia, Uganda is also uh, a landlocked uh, country. How many? 40, 50 million people. Uh, South Sudan is a landlocked country. Therefore, peace, security, stability, uh, security, community uh, uh, creation in the Horn of Africa has to take access to the sea as part and parcel of its core agenda. Right? I personally believe that this sh cannot and should not be pursued by using the military approach because I am also convinced for saying this that there is no such a thing as a small war in our region, all right? Every war is devastating and the consequence of it takes generational recovery, all right? Therefore, this issue of access to the sea need to be pursued as part and parcel of a holistic peace and security uh, and economic uh, arrangement where it will be, it will find sustainable answer in a robust regional integration. Robust regional integration means everybody growth because everybody is set to grow, has opportunity to grow, is not hindered to grow. I, I think it's worth noting that these opportunities for regional integration, let's take the GERD, for example, owing to the lack of trust between actors in this region very quickly become threats to different countries in the region. So I think our, actually our starting point is not even these frameworks necessarily. It's doing the difficult work diplomatic work as Alex has laid out that is you know absolutely missing in action um, to build that trust in the first place otherwise you won't be able to get any agreement that a holds um, and b is not seen as some kind of time bomb and you know the the guard now has become a sort of a fait accompli so there's no the tensions that we saw maybe two years ago are not to the same degree but that doesn't mean that the concerns that other countries had around the GERD have suddenly disappeared. And part of that is because, of course, there is this lack of trust. So I think that is the first port of call. And that, I think, works within countries in the Horn and also between countries in the Horn. And it's quite interesting when you look at how, for example, water-related issues are dealt with in the ECOWAS region or in West Africa. It, there's a very different um, setup there. And there's a very different way in which those countries relate to their regional um, body, ECOWAS, versus how countries in the Horn relate to, for example, EGAD, have trust in EGAD, or how they use EGAD um, to meet their own individual ends. In the case of EGAD, let's see if the Sudan mediation will make it possible for us to recalibre and reinvent and re-energize leadership within the sub-region, you know, as part of the response to the Sudan crisis. Here is an opportunity. At, I think at the continental level, 
there is going to be an, an, an election for the chairperson of the African Union and also for commissioners and all of that. Let's see if this could also provide uh, an opportunity for putting in place at the continental level the leadership that will rise up to the current challenge by taking a very critical stock of what has happened in the past four or five years. I want to just build on this, but let's make understand one thing. People talk about regional integration. This is not a pedestrian bureaucratic project. It is a political project. Mm -hmm. And until people understand that and therefore have an, a strategy and organize it so that the security, the economics, the politics, and the diplomacy are all part of one single exercise, we will end up with stovepipes where we have finance ministers discussing a railway here and a dam there. We'll have diplomats doing their little thing. And, you know, we'll have the security people worrying about security. The fact is, what this region at the moment needs, is crying out for, is a genuinely strategic approach from within the region, a willingness to understand that integration in the right sense, it's not about surrender of sovereignty, it's about managing the accommodations of sovereignty in, in a region where which is weak, that you pull together. You cannot get the economic projects if you don't have the security. What do you need in this region? A security agreement among all the countries, a real treaty, which deals simply with territorial integrity and non-interference. Start with that alone and police it. You begin to create the conditions of confidence for real economic growth. Then you begin to talk about how borders are managed and the like. But this means everything has to be brought together. Right? At the moment, it's dispersed. So I raise this more as a point of agenda. I mean, why, why not begin that discussion? I was at the beginnings of a thing called the Horn of Africa Initiative six, seven years ago. The World Bank and everyone else was involved in the European Union and the like. It's now, with all respect to the ministers of finance, they're not getting the attention of their heads of state. And as a consequence, these big projects that will bind, create the indissoluble links between countries is not getting the necessary support. This is, fits into ports, but it's the much larger project. That is what is needed. And the fragmentation that is occurring is also an institutional fragmentation. It's a fragmentation, a mental fragmentation. It can be fixed. It needs someone to step up and say, here's an agenda. Let's start thinking around. It needs someone from within the region to raise it, which is why I welcome the fact that Abdul, for example, put out in an article about Kenya taking a lead. Why? Kenya filled a space. It's as simple as that. It may have work to do, I don't care, but the, this is, it's the momentum. Politics is about momentum. We're at a stage now where the, the region needs that. You guys just ended on a note of the region needing, in some ways, to solve its own problems, or at least to, to address many of its own problems as a starting point. Given the discussion that we've had, can that now happen without it also including other middle powers like Gulf countries that are involved? And if they are involved, can it happen without the West being involved too? What, what, what is, you know, where really do we have to start to really address some of these issues? I think they work on several levels. And I think the starting point has to be the region. Um, we can't, you know, sort of put our heads in the sand and pretend that, you know, Gulf interests and Gulf competition don't have an impact on the Horn of Africa, but they cannot be the drivers of change in this region. Because um, when we see that, as devastatingly as we see it in, for example, Sudan, um, it becomes very clear that that's not where the solution lies. Uh, but including other actors, whether they are more sort of within the neighborhood or further afield, is important. It just cannot be, I think, the starting point. But just to Alex's point, you know, this whole thing requires leadership. And I think there are many in, in this part of the world who feel that we are bereft of leadership. Um, so I think we also need to understand, we need to balance the urgency of some of these things, but also with the understanding that we may not see that kind of leadership for a while is able to bring those things together. But I think we also need to look beyond states. Uh, we have communities here that, you know, in this part of the, the world that are, um, you know, exist on either side of 
international borders and that have different stakes but have similar interests. I think if we make this conversation less about any particular ruler and more, much more about the communities that are going to be absolutely and immediately affected by some of these uh, decisions, then I think we're going to have actually a much more worthwhile discussion and potentially one with more options and more opportunities. I think in terms of our relationship with the Gulf countries, um, we need to use Sudan as a test, you know, uh, to cooperate in solving the Sudanese problem jointly, cooperatively. We should go out of our way, you know, to cooperate to help solve the Sudan problem so that the Sudanese people will figure out their future politically. And the international community to help uh, uh, provide, uh, you know, uh, capacities for this or goodwill for this. And the African Peace and Security Council uh, to assume it is responsibility and address these issues with utmost, with utmost seriousness. And if the PSC addresses these issues with utmost seriousness, then the chance of the UN Security Council, you know, taking the African solution seriously, you know, has a higher chance and provide within uh, uh, what you call a fragmented security council, a co uh, the incoherent security council to achieve some coherence in, in, in their approach to the Horn of, of Africa. So there is enough responsibility to go around, you know, to see if the future architecture for a sustainable uh, framework could emerge out of this. This continent and this region has challenges it has to face. There's no fiscal space to even do politics. At best, countries are paying salaries and servicing debts. That is no way to be able to even think imaginatively. Are governments capable of giving a sense of belonging to all their citizens? The answer is right now, that is no right now, because that's um, the challenge of the region why we have all this violence. That said, there was a question put earlier, should the West be involved? Everyone is involved. The West's a creditor. The West wants, so where do we go with this? How do we get a new contract with this region? I look at it from that perspective. The region has to have its own internal contract, but then to get the finance, to come to the relations globally that relate to trade, security, and everything else, there has to be another level of discussion. These are perfectly possible, but it needs an organization of thought and a clarity of purpose in it, and organiza actual organization. It's not going to happen overnight, but I don't think if we don't pick up that challenge, then I think we will be diminishing the opportunities for this region, but also for a broader security. Thank you all three so much for your time. Um, this was an all-star all -star panel and an excellent discussion, so thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Once again, The Horn is a production of the International Crisis Group, and this episode was in partnership with the Friedrich Ebert Foundation, or FES. Our producers are Mae Francis and Ida Holly-Nambi. <laughs> <laughs>